Welcome, y'all. So glad you're here. If I don't know you, my name is Steph Schneider. I'm on the teaching team here, and we're really glad you're here with us. I was telling the leaders this morning, some weeks um, when you're teaching, it's really challenging because the passage that you're teaching feels hard or feels confusing, or you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make this thing apply to the people that I'm talking to. You know, some weeks are hard because of that. But then you've got these other weeks uh, when it's hard because the passage is so good and it's so rich and it's so deep and it has done so much in you that trying to figure out how to then like compact that into like a lesson that makes sense and that isn't like 10 hours long (laughs) is really hard too, you know, and This week is kind of that kind of week. Um, I have been so taken with this chapter in John. I don't know if you have been, but I have been so taken with this chapter of John as I've looked at it, as I've studied it over the past couple weeks, um, that I am really excited for us to look at it together this morning. And I think I do want to say from the outset that because of everything that I just said, um, Because there is so much in this passage, there are so many things that I am not going to talk about from up here today. There are so many treasures, so many things that probably like just blew your mind this week or that God really showed you this week that I won't even touch from up here. And as I was like deleting them, trying to like whittle down um, this lecture, I was so sad to leave them behind. And so... um, That's the beauty of the small groups, right? And that's actually really the beauty of this week and having an extended time and a fellowship. Hopefully you can use some of that time to really share amongst each other some of the treasures that you found here in this passage um, today. And so without further ado, let's get after it. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 2. And um, as you do, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever had to explain or define or describe something to somebody that you, like, know what it is, uh, you, but you, like, don't know how to put it into words? Put it into words in, like, a way that the person that you're trying to explain it to could understand. So that's been happening to me a lot lately because my five-year-old will is like in this moment in time where he is obsessed with the concept of time. He is like constantly, constantly asking me questions about time. And I don't know, like, is this a developmental thing? I don't know. Like somebody talked to me about what's happening with Will. But he's constantly asking me about time. And like the interaction goes the same way every time. So he comes to me with a question and he's like, okay, mom, how long until the girls get home from school? How long till the brownies are done in the oven? How long does it take to get to the zoo? How long does it take to get to Hilton Head? You know, how long, mom? How long, how long? To which I respond with the answer, you know, it's gonna be five minutes till the girls get home on the bus, buddy. Um, Or the brownies, they've still got about 45 minutes to go. It takes 20 minutes to get to the zoo. It takes seven hours to get to Hilton Head. 
To which he then responds every single time. Well, how long is that? How long is five minutes? How long is 20 minutes? How long is seven hours? Which turns out to be a really hard question to answer to a five-year-old. You know, like, how do you explain what five minutes is? Um, Let alone, like, seven hours. How do you get into, like, minutes and then hours? Like, I'm not going to go into a whole spiel with him about, like, Well, son, there are 60 seconds in a minute, and then there's 60 minutes in an hour. And so if there's seven hours to Hilton Head, then you're going to times that by 60, and then you're going to, if you want to get the minutes, then you're going to times that, you know, like, I can't even do that. I can't even do that math. And so, like, that would be correct, but that is, like, not helpful to Will. Like, that is not, he's not going to be able to follow that, right? And so what he's needing me to do is to take this massive concept of time that he currently has pretty much no category for and to place it into some sort of framework uh, that he can understand, that he does have a category for. And a framework that he very much does have a category for is, for better or for worse, media. And so I've started resorting to media references to like help him to understand time. So how long till the brownies come out? 45 minutes. How long is that? Um, It's basically two blueies. Okay. Or like how long is the drive to Hilton Head? It's seven hours. Okay. How long is that? It's like five movies. Using this framework that he knows it like helps him to understand this massive concept of time. Um, As I've walked through this season of time, no pun intended, with Will, um, it's really given me a new perspective and a new appreciation for John, our writer um, of this beautiful gospel that we're digging into this year. Because y'all, this guy is attempting to answer a much harder question and help his readers to understand much loftier concepts um, than anything that I've tried to explain to Will. If you think time is hard to explain, try explaining the one who made it and who holds it in his hands, right? But that's exactly what John is trying to do here in this book. He's trying to answer basically two of the biggest questions of all time. Who is Jesus and why did he come to earth? Who is Jesus and why did he come to earth? How do you answer that question? How do you possibly put Jesus, his person, his purpose into mere words that a human mind can understand. It is a near impossible task. Uh, John Piper compared it once to the difference between trying to uh, define the word basketball and define the word beauty. Okay, so he said if somebody says, like they've never heard of a basketball, they don't know what a basketball is, and so they say, define a basketball for me. 
then that wouldn't be that hard for us to do. Like we can use our hands and we could say, well, it's like this round thing that's made of leather and rubber and it's about nine or 10 inches in diameter and you blow it up and you inflate it. And so it's pretty hard. And then you can bounce it like this and you can throw it to people and you can run while you're bouncing it. And then there's this hoop at the end of the court and it used to be a basket. And so that's why it's called basketball. And you throw the ball into the hoop And that's why they call it basketball. That would give a person a really good idea, he said, of what a basketball is. From there, they could spot it. They could distinguish it from a soccer ball, from a football, from a baseball. But you can't really do that with the word beauty, can you? Like, there are some words in our vocabulary, he says, that we can communicate not because we say them, but because we see them, we can point. And if we point at enough things and see enough things together and say, that's it, that's it, that's it, then we might be able to have some common sense of beauty. But when you try to put beauty into words, it's really, really Some words, some things, some concepts, some people are next to impossible to explain in words. And I'd be willing to go on record saying that Jesus Christ, his person and his purpose sits at the top of that list. Summing him up in mere words is a next to impossible task. Which is why... John, I think, in all of his brilliance, after making his best effort to put Jesus into words in the prologue, which Paige so beautifully broke down for us a few weeks ago, and then after putting forth the witness of John the Baptist and his verbal announcement, an announcement that he makes with words, declaring who Jesus is, John then switches gears. He switches gears and he says, okay, enough with the information. Let's get to some illustration. Let me show you what I have been trying to tell you. And so starting in chapter two, he starts to lay out these pictures for us. Pictures that are intended to take this massive concept of the person and the person of Jesus and place it in a framework that his original audience then and his current audience now, you and me, can somewhat get our minds around. Uh, They're pictures that are intended to point, as John Piper would say, to point to Jesus and to say, that's him, and that's him, and that's him. That is who Jesus is. And that thing he did, that miracle he worked, that's it, and that's it, and that's it. That is what he came to do. And a lot of these pictures, while other authors call them miracles, John chooses to call them signs. And I think he does that really intentionally to stress this idea of the purpose of these pictures, right? The purpose of the miracles, which is never just to be an end in themselves. 
never intended to just be naked displays of power, as D.A. Carson says, but instead these pictures, these miracles, these signs are intended to point. Because what are signs but pointers, right? Like, be it the sign for Dollywood, for Disney World, for whatever, the purpose of the sign is always to point. The sign is never the point. The sign is intended to point. To point to something bigger, to point to something better, to point to something beyond itself. And so, as we come to each of these pictures that John lays before us in his gospel, we can never just stop at the picture. We can never just stop at the sign, at the miracle. We can never just stop at the thing itself. But instead, we always have to be asking, what is this trying to point me to? How does this picture point me to something bigger, something better? something beyond itself. Does that make sense? Okay, so last week, Jesus invites his disciples. He says, come and see. And so this week, the pictures start rolling. And John starts out the picture book with two very important interactions, two very different interactions. So first, we've got Jesus coming on the scene, making his debut, Working his first miracle, he turns water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And then right on the heels of that, we get this really different picture. um, One where we see Jesus not turning water into wine, uh, but turning over tables in the temple in Jerusalem. Two very different scenes, right? Two very different scenes that at first glance can appear to be a little bit contradictory, maybe. But I think if we can hang on, I think if we can dig a little bit deeper, I think we're going to find that actually, rather than being contradictory, these two scenes are actually meant to be very complementary. They're placed side by side, I think, by John very intentionally to give us a really big picture of the scope of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Okay, so y'all ready? First two pictures of Jesus' public ministry. John chapter 2. Read with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, 
Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Pernum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you do to show us, or what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a room full of women who've come to meet with you. Um, We do not want to leave here the same way we came in. We want your word to do something in us, to change us, to transform us. So would you right now send your spirit to open our ears, to open our hearts, to open our minds to you and to your word. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and would you make this time matter for today, for tomorrow, and for eternity? We love you. Amen. Okay, so John opens this this passage with picture number one of the person and the purpose of Jesus. So the setting of the picture is a wedding a wedding that Jesus and his disciples have been invited to. And it's a wedding that we quickly learn has a big problem. They have run out of wine. They've run out of wine at this wedding, which was a really big deal. And that's because back in Jesus's days, I mean, weddings are still a big deal, but weddings were a huge deal. Um, They were like this huge celebration that the entire town came to, a party that literally lasted for two, three, maybe seven days, um, and where food and wine was like flowing continuously. And it was the groom's responsibility to ensure that that actually happened, to ensure that there was enough food 
and enough wine to last for the entire length of the party, um, however long that turned out to be. And to run out of wine before the wedding was over, like we see happen in our story this morning, it would have been extremely shameful, a huge embarrassment for the couple and for their family. Uh, It likely revealed that they didn't have the means necessary to supply for the feast. So to run out of wine was publicly humiliating. And I was actually reading in one commentary that it was actually punishable by law. Like you could be sued for running out of wine at your own wedding. Like what in the world? So this is a big deal, you guys. The, the wedding has run out of wine. The bride and groom stand in danger of suffering public humiliation and maybe even legal ramifications. But luckily for this couple, there's somebody at this wedding who is uniquely sensitive to that kind of problem. There's somebody at this wedding who knows a thing or two about suffering public shame and humiliation. And she refuses to sit by and watch this wedding unravel in front of her eyes. And so we watch as Mary, the mother of Jesus, move into action. She comes to Jesus and she tells him this couple has run out of wine. To which Jesus responds in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I'm not sure how that phrase settled with you. I know for me, I was kind of like, hold up. That feels rude. Um, That feels disrespectful. That feels insensitive. Um, And I love that our homework made us do a little digging here. Because the more you dig, the more you begin to realize, actually, the response of Jesus, it really isn't rude. It really isn't disrespectful. It really isn't insensitive. It really isn't any of those things like it might appear on the surface. But what it is, is incredibly intentional. In this response, Jesus is doing two really important, intentional things. First of all, he is creating distance between himself and his mom. This is why he calls her a woman. Or, uh, Anne Scatberg told me it actually says dear woman. But he calls her woman, dear woman, instead of mother. He is needing Mary to understand in this moment, that from this point forward, as he begins his public ministry, their relationship is going to be fundamentally different. Um, His identity is no longer going to be primarily defined by being the son of Mary. But instead now, it will be defined as being the son of Mary. Of God. He no longer will be answering to her or moving according to her timing or in accordance with her will, Um, but from this time on, 
he will only move according to the timing of and in accordance with the will of his father. He's creating distance when he calls her woman. And I also think he's creating a distinction between their agendas when he starts talking about his hour. What does this have to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. So throughout the book of John, um, every time that Jesus refers to his hour, he's referring to the hour of his death. Uh, So the hour of his suffering, he's talking about the cross. So it's almost as if when Mary comes to him with the problem of the wine and Jesus responds that basically it's not time for him to die yet, it's almost as if he's saying, um, I've come to do a lot more than fix a wine problem at a wedding. I've come to fix a life problem in the world. You're concerned, Mom, with an immediate problem. And I'm concerned too. But I'm even more concerned with an eternal problem. Our agendas are a little bit different, Mom. But then don't you just love Mary's response? Like she's still so confident in who he is and, and what he will do. And there's something really instructive for us in that, I think. And she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know what he's going to do, but do whatever he tells you. And what he ends up telling them to do, look at verse 6 through 8, is to take six stone water jars that are there and usually used for the Jewish rites of purification. So for ceremonial washing and cleansing according to the law. Don't miss that detail. But he tells them to take those water jars, each of which held 20 to 30 gallons of water, and to fill them to the brim with water. And then they're supposed to draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. And somewhere between the jar filling and the master of the feast, in the hands of these no-name servants, plain old water is transformed into the finest of wine. Uh, we read that when the master of the feast tasted it, he immediately like calls the groom over. And rather than publicly shaming him for his failure to provide, as I'm sure the groom was anticipating, he praises him for waiting to serve the best wine until now, until the end of this wedding. Nobody does that. He says, everybody serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. And don't you just wonder the confusion in this groom's mind um, as he hears this praise from this master of the feast, and perhaps he tastes the wine for himself, knowing without a doubt that it's better than any wine he could have provided. And he had to just be looking around and wondering, where did this come from? Right? Where did this come from? And only Jesus' mother and disciples and the servants knew the answer to that question. Jesus, the long-awaited 
son of God had stepped in and had done what nobody else could do. He had provided not just wine where there was none, but wine in abundance, right? Uh, most people estimate he made somewhere between, somewhere around 700 bottles of wine that day. A wedding that minutes earlier had run out of wine was now overflowing with it. And overflowing not just with any old wine, but with the best wine. Jesus steps in and provides abundant wine of the highest degree. But not only has he transformed the situation from empty to full, creating something where there was nothing, um, but he's also taken away this threat of shame from the groom, right? And transferred this commendation that he, that Jesus deserved onto this groom. Everyone serves the good wine first, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus had done that, but the credit goes to the groom. This, John says, the first of Jesus' signs, he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So there it is, the first picture, the first miracle, the first sign of Jesus. And so the question for us this morning is what is the point, right? What is the point? What is it that this picture, this sign, is trying to point us to? How does this picture point us to something bigger, something better, something beyond itself? And there's probably an enormous list of answers to that question. But I think perhaps the foundational thing that this picture, this sign, this moment at this wedding, when Jesus intercedes on behalf of this specific couple in this specific problem where the wine has run out, the foundational thing that this picture is intending to point us to is actually a greater problem that Jesus has come to do something about and a more glorious provision that Jesus intends to bring. A greater problem that Jesus intends to do something about and a more glorious provision that Jesus intends to bring. So first of all, let's talk about how this is pointing us to a greater problem. We first have to see that this isolated problem at this specific wedding is actually pointing us to a much greater, much more pervasive problem that threatens every single human being. The problem of this couple at this wedding is actually your problem and it's my problem and it's all of humanity's problem. See, throughout the Bible, wine is constantly associated with joy and with life, with blessing, with satisfaction. Uh, Psalm 104, Proverbs 3, on and on I could go. Wine is associated with joy, with life, with abundance, with satisfaction. And the Bible associates lack of wine 
with sorrow and darkness. And so this couple running out of wine really stands as a visual picture of the deeper reality of the human experience, which is, of course, that no matter how hard we try, apart from Jesus, who is himself the source of all life and all joy, apart from Jesus, the wine always runs out. The joy, the life, the blessing that we are all so desperately trying to conjure up on our own and hold on to for dear life. It's never enough and it never Last, it always runs out. The wine always runs out. Don't we know it? And really, that problem is just a symptom of an even deeper problem, an even greater problem, right? One that takes us all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where all of our stories begin. Um, in the garden where we see the first wedding of the first couple, Adam and Eve, and the beauty of life spent enjoying unhindered intimacy with God and with one another where everything is right and everything is good and everything is perfect. Until one day, in a devastating act of disobedience, both Adam and Eve end up rebelling against God as they attempt to find life joy and satisfaction apart from him their own way right and what we find very quickly is that by grasping for life their own way rather than God's way which they thought would bring them life and joy and satisfaction actually ends up bringing quite the opposite they find themselves broken by sin hiding in shame separated from the God who made them. And ever since, all of humanity has suffered under the same consequences. We all find ourselves broken by sin, separated from God, and hiding in shame. Hear me on this. Our greatest problem is that you and I and all of humanity because of sin, are separated from God. Cut off from the one who is life itself, the only source of true and lasting life and joy and satisfaction. And so we're desperately looking for another one, right? For an alternate source to provide us with life and joy and satisfaction that we know we were made for, but we can't seem to find. We look for it in all kinds of things, um, in a newer car, in a nicer house, in a bigger neighborhood, in people, in relationships, in success, in social status. Um, we think it can be found in a cushier bank account, in a busier calendar, uh, a better body, maybe in a little more pleasure or an uptick in popularity. Fill in the blank with whatever you want. The point is that sin 
cuts us off from the only true and lasting source of life and joy and leaves us desperately looking in a million other places. A million other places that ultimately never work, right? I mean, they might work for a minute. They might give us a hit of life, a hit of joy, a hit of satisfaction. But we all know they never last. In the end, the wine, it always runs out. I wonder where you've known that to be true in your own life, in your own experience. Where in your life have you experienced the wine running out? Where are the places that you've looked for life, for joy, for satisfaction, apart from Christ, that have left you empty in the end? And it may not be past past tense, right? Like, where are the places where right now we know we're looking for life and joy and satisfaction apart from Christ? Where are those places You guys, the problem at the wedding is my problem, and it's your problem, and it's all of humanity's problem. Apart from God, the wine always runs out. The joy, the life, the satisfaction that our hearts are longing for always runs out, and despite our efforts to find it and to hold on to it, we continually come up empty. The wine always runs out, and just like the couple in the story, we have no way of supplying it in the way that we need. But the good news of the gospel that is all over this story is that there is one who has come to intervene. The only person who could do something about their problem is the only person who can do something about our problem. And y'all, he has done it. Jesus, the perfect son of God, has stepped into our story just like he stepped into theirs in order to do what nothing and no one else could. To provide the remedy to our greatest problem, our separation from God. This is the reason that he came to reverse the curse, to remove the shame, to rescue his people from sin and death, to redeem his bride, the church, to restore his people to life, to joy, to satisfaction in abundance. And the only reason that he can is because his hour, the hour that had not yet come in this story, did eventually come, right? His hour, the hour of his suffering, the hour of his death on the cross would eventually come. And it's this hour at the cross where I want you to see the real miracle happened, where something more amazing happened than water being turned into wine. At the cross, Jesus turned the wrath of God away from you and onto himself, away from me and onto himself. At the cross, Jesus ushered in a new covenant through his death, replacing the old ritual purity ways 
ushering in a new and better way for mankind to be fully and finally made right with God. At the cross, Jesus provides a more glorious provision for our greatest problem, which, of course, comes through his blood. At the cross, Jesus takes what we deserve, my shame, my sin, the wrath of God that I deserve. Jesus takes it, and he gets me the credit for everything that he has earned. His righteousness, his perfection, his life. And he does it all because he loves us. Because he wants to be our husband. Because he wants to be with us. And he wants to bring us life. He wants, us to bring us, he wants to bring us life now, like this very day, in our very specific places of emptiness where the world has left us lacking. He wants to fill those places up with his life, his joy, his satisfaction. But even more than that, he wants to bring us life forever, eternal life Jesus, the Son of God, the true and better bridegroom, has come to the world, has paid the price my sin deserved, so that one day, when he returns, he can bring me, and he can bring you, and he can bring all of his church, his beautiful bride, to be with him in a place that the Bible calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. A place where there will finally be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more darkness. But where fully and finally we will experience ultimate satisfaction, unending joy, eternal and abundant life. This is the person and the purpose of Jesus. Is that not amazing? The Son of God who has come to bring us lasting life, abundant life, now and forever. This is who he is. This is why he came. And the question is, do you believe it? Like, do you really, do you really believe it? And if you do, what would it look like for you to practically Stop looking to the things, to the people, to the places of this world for your life, for your joy, for your satisfaction. And start looking to Christ alone for those things. How would that change your life? In this first miracle of Jesus, we get a picture of Jesus as the one who brings life by turning water into wine, filling up our emptiness. And then isn't it interesting that in the very next story, John gives us a picture of Jesus still bringing life, but essentially by doing the exact opposite thing. Because in the second picture in the temple, Jesus isn't filling up anything, is he? Like, in fact, he's actually clearing out, right? Like, he walks into this temple and he, like, cleans house. Uh, And that's because the problem at the temple is not an emptiness problem. It's a fullness problem. The outer courtyard of the temple is full of things 
that it was never intended to be full of. There's all kinds of buying and selling that's happening in this place that was always intended to be a place of worship. Uh, The problem in this picture is not so much what they were doing, uh, what they were doing, the buying, the selling of animals. That wasn't wrong in and of itself. It was actually good and right and a necessary thing. The problem wasn't with what they were doing. The problem was with where they were doing it, where they were buying and selling these animals, which, of course, as we've said, is in the outer courtyard of the temple, a place that was meant for worship but a place that they've selfishly turned into a marketplace. And as a result, they're preventing outsiders from worshiping God. Um, And Jesus just isn't having it. We read that he's angry, and we watch as he enters the temple, and he makes a whip of cords, and he drags these merchants and these money changers along with their animals out of the temple. He pours out their coins. He turns over their tables. He orders the people who are selling the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. This wasn't their house. This wasn't their house that was to be used in just any old way. This house, this place, this temple, it belonged to somebody else. It was his father's house. His father's house that was intended to be a place of worship where outsiders are drawn in. But they had turned it into a marketplace for buying and for selling and for personal gain. And so we see here that sometimes Jesus brings life by turning water into wine, filling up our emptiness. And other times, Jesus brings life by turning over tables and emptying places in our lives where we are full of things that we were never intended to be full of so that ultimately he might cleanse us from sin and restore us to life. The physical temple courtyard in the story didn't belong to the merchants and the money changers. It wasn't theirs to be used in any old way that they wanted. And guys, it's the same with us. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we too are not our own. We saw this in our homework, right? We are now the temple, the dwelling place of the living God. We have been bought with a price and we belong to someone else. We belong to Jesus, which means that we are not free to use our lives in just any old way that we would like to. But instead, we are called to live according to his will, his ways, to live our lives in such a way that brings glory to God and good to those around us, drawing them in to worship rather than hindering them from coming. And we do this all because we belong to him, because we are his. We are his temple. This picture confronts us and convicts us of our tendencies to turn the places that God intends to be used for worship into a marketplace for selfish gain. I'm guilty of it. I wonder if you are too. But in his great love, Jesus refuses to sit by and allow this mess to continue 
He steps into our lives with the zeal of a jealous lover, turning over tables in the name of love for the sake of life. Our life and those around us. He comes and he cleanses the temple of our lives in order that he might reclaim his rightful place on the throne of our hearts and our lives. Are there places in your life where you are using your life, your body, God's temple, as more of a marketplace for buying and for selling and for selfish gain rather than as a place of worship as he intended? And in those places, are you willing to open your hands and allow Jesus to cleanse you from sin and transform those areas of your life into places of worship that reflect his glory to the world around you? Do you trust that even the discipline of Jesus, the confronting, the convicting, the clearing of house, the turning of tables, is ultimately still his good and gracious invitation into a deeper and a more abundant life. Two pictures, two places, two problems, both intended to reveal one person with one purpose. We need both of these pictures to begin to understand the fullness of who Jesus is and the life that he has come to offer. But I think so often the reality is we are usually comfortable with one or the other, right? Like we either love a God who fills up emptiness and brings life and joy and satisfaction. We love the Lord of the wine, as one commentator says. But we really struggle with the Lord of the whip. We really struggle with a God who cleans out the temple with a whip of cords. Or we love a God who brings the heat and brings the truth and flips the tables. But then we really have no category for a God who would come to bring life and joy and satisfaction based on no merit of our own. A grace that feels A grace that's that radical feels next to impossible for us to comprehend. But the reality is we must have both. We must have both because Jesus is both. Jesus is both. He is the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus is both. He's the son of God who came to bring life, life now, and life in abundance forever. Sometimes that looks like turning water into wine at a wedding, and sometimes that looks like turning over tables in a temple. But all the time, it's done out of love and intended to bring us life. Life now and life forever. Do you believe it? I pray that you would. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for these beautiful reminders this morning in your word of who you are and of why you came. Would you help us believe that you truly are the son of God who has come to bring us life, 
life now and life forever. And when we look to you and to you alone for that life today. We love you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.